Grab your Bibles, Habakkuk chapter number two. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We covered quite a bit last week. We won't cover nearly as much this evening, but uh, we'll get into the next section. Been an exciting study here in Habakkuk, and uh, boy, I've enjoyed this little book. There's not, uh, it's one of those survey books from Bible college, and so didn't spend a whole lot of time in even college, and so it's been a delight to study it and uh, really uh, dissect it a little bit and uh, been a good challenge. If you remember, we won't review much tonight, but if you remember, um, and we'll go through, just review a little bit as we do. If you need an outline, Brother Dick will be coming down the middle aisle. If you you need an outline, get his attention. We certainly would love for you to be able to follow along. Sometimes it's easier to follow the outline than me, so you can do so. Grab one of those. That'd be wonderful. Get his attention, and uh, we'll go through it. First of all, in the beginning, we saw what uh, Habakkuk presented as his burden, his perplexity. Really, he, he thought God was being silent, so we called it that here at the beginning, and uh, we talked about him wrestling with his emotions, his focus on self, and it caused that temporary faltering in his walking by faith, and oh, he, he really demonstrated for us, we've seen uh, that settled faith shows that necessary resolve. And we kind of put it in these terms. When heaven is seemingly silent, faith keeps looking upward. And so uh, we want to live daily by that truth that, you know, sometimes our prayers go unanswered. Sometimes things do not happen in the way that we would want and desire. And yet when that is the case, when uh, those prayers go unanswered, our faith needs to continue to look upward, that settled faith. And secondly, we saw how God answered him. We called it the statement by God or the plan of the prophet's God. He shares with Habakkuk his plan. And and in doing so, he gives an assurance. You remember this? And I think this is so crucial for us to be reminded of time and time again, not to beat the dead horse, but he tells Habakkuk, I am completely aware of what's going on in the nation. I, I know the hearts of my people. I know what they're doing. They're not getting away with anything. And then he, secondly, he assures him, he reminds him, I'm working behind the scenes. And often we are not privy to the working of God behind the scenes. We don't get the peep behind the scenes, as we might say. But he's back there working. He's working things out according to his plan. And then last but not least, you remember what he said, and this is kind of caught us, uh, caught Habakkuk off the guard. I believe it's chapter 1, verse 5 there, uh, where he basically said, I'm going to do something that's going to astonish you. You're going to be amazed at this Habakkuk. And he lays out with that how he's going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians as that tool and everything else. And through it all, we learn this, the settled faith tells us that God answer is the best answer, even though our hearts might think otherwise. So my settled faith, the just shall live by faith, or the just shall live by his faith, chapter 2, verse 4. That settled faith that says, okay, God's answer is the best. Now, we also learn from Habakkuk that it takes it a step further because there's action that must follow that resolve. That's the resolve, and so resolve leads to action. And so that action is simply this. He, he doesn't like the answer that he received, right? He said, this is incompatible compatible with the uh, doctrine that I know, the characteristics of you, God. This is incompatible with what I think should happen, what, what is good, what is right, how this should play out. That's uh, kind of his response in that. And in response to that, we said this, we learned this simple statement. The just must live by a faith that is fully yielded and surrendered to God, his will, his way, no matter the doubt spurred on by our perspective, our view, our privy, what we're privy to and how we see a situation. So here's the action, the resolve. Okay, my, my faith is settled. God's answer is best. Now I need to be surrendered, yielded to that. Um, you know, we, we've said this before, and sometimes we as parents have experienced, maybe you as grandparents, uh, maybe you've seen someone else. It's better to describe it happening to someone else than ourselves. Have you ever seen a parent grabbing a kid and dragging them, kicking and screaming? 
okay? And all along the way, they're kicking and screaming, and, you know, uh, that's, that's uh, sometimes, unfortunately, because we don't have settled faith, we don't have a faith that's fully yielded and surrendered to God's plan, sometimes we go along in life kicking and screaming. And uh, that's no way for any Christian to go along, amen? And so faith says, no, 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 I'm trusting God. His answer's best. And then I'm going to be fully yielded and surrendered. I may not understand why. My heart may have doubts in it, but I'm going to stick to God's plan. I'm going to follow that and trust is really the key there, trust Him. And so as we got into chapter 2 here, God then responds again after he expresses Habakkuk the prophet. He expresses his frustration, and he says, I, this is incompatible, and uh, he's being taught that lesson of fully yielded and surrendered faith. And then we come back, and God answers him once more, and here is where uh, Habakkuk probably wishes he would have bit his tongue earlier, where he would have just, instead of kicking and screaming, would have gone along and uh, see it all played out. But we began in verse 2, chapter 2. Notice what it says, remind ourselves. And the Lord answered me and said, write out the vision, make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. And so we've entitled this section, the rest of chapter 2 from here on out, um, as the sovereignty of God or the prophecy of God. Now, he, he, he's allowing Habakkuk to have a glimpse into the full plan and uh, to allay some of his fears. And so I love these verses. The first two basically helps Habakkuk. Remember we said this last time, and I love it when we reach this point in our own circumstances, when our worry can be changed into worship. And we'll see that. That plays out into chapter 3. I, if you were to glance ahead, you'll notice Habakkuk comes full circle and he begins worshiping the God of all, realizing his sovereignty and his omniscience and that God is good all the time. And uh, we'll get there. It's exciting. But that kind of begins it here. And uh, God's telling him this was going to be a permanent record of prophecy that God wanted to be written plainly and proclaimed widely. Okay? That's a little different. That's not on your outline. You're not missing it. Okay? All right? So a little different. This is just review but uh, we didn't really share in that terminology last time. But understand, that's what he wanted. Written plainly and proclaimed widely. That's what God said. And we, we broke apart those phrases. He, he that reads it runs and so forth and things there. So that's his desire that all generations to come, right? It wasn't just for that moment. It was for generations to come, maybe decades later, that this prophecy would come true for sure. And maybe even up to a century and so forth. And so that's God's desire here as he speaks to Habakkuk to speak to the generations to come. But there there's also that personal, and this is close to where we left off. There's also that personal lesson for Habakkuk, right? It was a woe, and there's two sets of woes in this passage. The first is a woe to the prophet, that hold on Habakkuk, just hang on, whoa, like you tell a horse of old, right? And uh, sitting in a wagon or whatever the case, or riding a horse, whoa, just hang on, whoa. And uh, all that would question is the same thing. He gives us a lesson on God's timetable. He reminds us that God's calendar is bigger than our calendar. And uh, when it comes to answers to prayer, when it comes to fulfillment of promises that seem delayed to you and I, we are reminded of this truth. Delay is only in the heart of man. The details of God's plan always occur according to God's perfect timing. You know what? I don't know about you, but uh, and, and many of you have been the recipient or the sufferer of this truth. Uh, my to-do list is longer than I can even think. There's so much on it, and many of you share the same thing. You have so many things to do, and you never get to it in a day. And, and boy, you remember one day, something you forgot the day before and so forth. And, boy, it's been delayed. And, and uh, I ran into a couple of those today. Man, I just got behind us. Oh, I need to take care of that yesterday. I need to take care of that a couple of days ago. And boy, it's just so many things you're on. Aren't you grateful that God is never delayed? 
Yeah, he, he never, oh no, hey, Stephen, I'm sorry, I meant to give this to you two years ago. <laughs> no, God doesn't do that. God is perfect in his timing. There is no delay. All the details fall into place exactly when it's perfect for you and I. And more, there is comfort in that. When I think of it, and my, you know, my, have your kids ever come up to you at the end of a day, at the end of a week? You said we were going to do this today. You said you'd do this with me today. You said, and boy, like, oh, man. You know what? You'll never, as a child of God, be able to say to God, you missed this. This was delayed. This didn't happen. No, no, no. God's timing is perfect. And delay is only in the heart of mankind. And boy, I think that's such a good thing. We, we said because of that and reflection of that, it, it challenges you and I as a daily reminder to, uh, to daily tell ourselves this. God has a purpose in everything. I need to show patience. And that's why he says, listen, it, it, though it tarries, it will happen. And when it happens, it will not lie. It's going to come exactly as I tell you. This will play out in history as proven it for you and I looking back. We say hindsight is twenty twenty. We know exactly what God says to Habakkuk plays out historically as the Medes and the Purge and others descend upon the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. And so, uh, and all soon will be perfect. And boy, isn't that delightful. You know, I'm reminded that no matter what earthly leaders and what this earth promises, it will never be perfect. But God's way is always perfect. His way is perfect. And so it will end up that way. And, and certainly as we look to heaven, but even in, in certain situations, how many of us have looked back on our own circumstances and we said, boy, man, if, if it had gone and played out the way I wanted, whew, that would have been terrible. But I sure am glad that it played out the way God wanted. That was perfect. Exactly what I needed. That was exactly what worked everything out according to his purpose and his perfect plan. And what a great reminder that is, okay? Then we came to the beginning of the meat of the vision. Verse 4, notice it. Let's remind ourselves. He says this, Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Here's that key verse again. It also begins a series of woes. A lot of people just say there's five. I say there's six because I include this even though the word woe isn't there, okay? He's really challenging my mind. Hey, he's saying woe, and we, we added this to the outline even from last week, woe to the proud, woe to the proud. And so this is a different kind of woe. It's a warning, and uh-oh, if you don't change your ways, something bad's going to happen, woe uh, to you. And so first of all, this verse, woe to the proud. We saw that universal principle he gave us, the proud's not upright of heart, that is pride is not right. And so we said uh, to make it practically, what it means is the last one standing in a sense, the last one one upright in stature does not necessarily mean they're the upright of heart. And though God will use the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, it does not validate how they handle themselves. They're still answerable for the choices they make and how they conquer other nations and the sins that they commit. We'll see even tonight. And so he's saying, listen, just because, especially their hard attitude reveals they are prideful, and just because I'm using them does not validate their pride. You know, sometimes you look at an athlete or somebody else that seems to have great success, and yet they are the most proud person you've ever met. Listen, just because they have success, it does not validate their pride. Now, we saw the verse that is uh, clear about the only end uh, goal or the only end of uh, pride, and that's this. Pride goeth before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. That's the only end of uh, a life of pride and those who choose and act in their pride. And we saw that and challenged by that all at the same time. And then we come to this conclusion from it. It is better to be the one who lives humbly by faith in the God who controls the calendar than to live in prideful confidence in the one who controls nothing. I love that statement. 
It's long and wordy, but it means a lot. And so here, here's reality. Chaldeans trusted in themselves. And you know what they controlled? Absolutely nothing. You know what you and I control from day to day? Not much beyond am I going to trust God today or am I going to get ulcers because I don't trust him? Am I living by faith? Am I part of the just that lives by faith, that settled faith in God? Or am I going to try to control things and we found out what happens when you and I try to control things that falls apart, amen? It doesn't work out for the best or as perfectly as it does when God is. So either I'm going to trust him who controls the calendar or I'm going to have that prideful confidence in myself, okay? Now, let's see the next woe as we think. We call it this, okay? So woe to the proud. And then number two, woe to the one who gives in to pride-induced self-ambition, okay? So everything flows from that prideful attitude and spirit that the Chaldeans, we saw it even uh, demonstrative or demonstrated, excuse me, in um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself. We looked at those verses last week in Daniel chapter 4. And uh, uh, so everything flows from that. Notice that it's self-ambition. Look at verse 5, if you will, with me. We'll read down through verse 8. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man. Neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. Shall not all these take up a parable against him, and a taunting proverb against him, and say, Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his? How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee, because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, and of the city, and of all that dwell therein. My goodness, in these few verses, you know, we have quite a list of sins. We'll, we'll kind of expound upon them and see exactly. But as the prophet points out, and don't miss it because it's interesting, Habakkuk will drink, bring up drunkenness and alcohol and drinking here throughout this, uh, this prophecy. Actually, God brings it up through the prophecy. So we'll, we'll delve with it. We'll get into it more actually in a future week. And yet, notice what he says right away. He reminds us that, that uh, drunkenness, when that's added to sin, yeah, there are far greater transgressions that erupt. You know, it makes it worse if you could describe it as such. And so that's what he's saying here. He alludes to that in verse number five, um, that truth. Notice the description because it's really a warning. He wa- he's warning those who would be greedy, who's not satisfied with what you have, selfish, motivated by self-ambition, and are abusive all along the way. And you think of it, it really describes a cutthroat uh, mentality. We look around America today, we look some in, in industrialized nations, we look in the political landscape, and often the attitude can be a cutthroat, succeed-at-all-cost mentality. And there are many who succeed in business, who succeed seed in politics with that kind of attitude and that kind of spirit you know what this is a great reminder of that does not pay it doesn't pay that's not the way to do it that is not in fact woe unto you is really the description here and so you and i could make a name for ourselves we could do many things and boy if we do it callously if we do it with selfish self-ambition and uh, at the hurt and pain of others boy there is a grave warning in scriptures about that you know how he describes them he says their desire their desire for more will be insatiable 
They'll be unable to be satisfied. They'll do whatever it takes to fulfill that appetite. We want more land. We want more possessions. We want to conquer more people. And they'll never be satisfied. Never. That's what he says. You're not going to satisfy it. In fact, see what he compares it to? Let me ask you this. On a daily basis, are death and hell ever satisfied? Well, no. He throws it in there. They're like hell and death. Why? Because, you know, the sad reality is even today someone died. Even today, likely, someone entered hell. Are they ever satisfied? Well, we would answer, boy, we wish they were. (laughs) We wish there would be a time where (laughs) death and hell, there will be, certainly. But until Christ returns and then he returns again and sets up his kingdom and (laughs) conquers all, death and hell will not be satisfied. And he says, boy, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are like that. It doesn't matter who they hurt. It doesn't matter what they do and and the pain they cause. It is self-ambition. And so they will never be satisfied. Likewise, they'll stop at nothing to acquire wealth and build their kingdom. He describes them taking lands and people and possessions that don't belong to them. In fact, he describes them as thieves of the greatest degree. They heap to themselves others, uh, people, gathering slaves and, and people wherever, whenever they wanted to. They gather to themselves things. But don't miss it. In this prophecy by our God, there is a good reminder of a universal principle and truth. Uh, to everything that has a planting season, there is a reaping season. And, and that's really the encouragement. He's, he assures Habakkuk and Israel and others, Israel in the future. Israel, when the Chaldeans descend upon you and they, they take many of your people away into captivity, when, when there's very few left, they decimate the land, remember, remember the universal principle. Can't you look around you in creation? Can't you look in your own lives and see it? Shall not these nations see the day when these same Chaldeans, instead of being feared, notice what he says in the verses, they'll be used as a byword. They will be the meat of a parable gone wrong, a story gone wrong. They will be the the lesson. They will be mocked and taunted. He uses that terminology for taking what did not belong to them in their selfish ambition. Uh, They will be um, looked down upon, held in disdain. The day is coming. Though they may have a moment where they are on top of the hill, they may have the moment where they conquer others, they will quickly fall. Uh, that destruction that comes to those who are prideful. In that, he reminds us of this truth, that no man knows the length of the season, but we can trust the God of the harvest. You see, friend, the reality is this. I, uh, it's things you're praying about, and we, we don't know the length. In fact, I think the greatest illustration is this, when it comes to Christ returning in the time of God's mercy right now, his long suffering, no man knoweth the hour of Christ's return. We don't know how long the season is, but I sure am thankful that we can trust the God of the harvest who's going to come and reap. He's going to reap his children. He's going to bring the bride of Christ uh, home with Christ. And that's going to happen. We can trust the God of the harvest, but reality is you and I may not know the length of the season. Times of prayer, things that you are praying for, my friend, don't give up. Don't uh, keep at it. You don't know the length of the season, but praise God, you know the God of the harvest. You know he's faithful. 
You know he'll hold true to what he has promised and said he'll do. And so trust him. Look to him and keep that trust. It's a great reminder to Habakkuk in this. And he's promised us, the prince, well, we know it well, that every man will reap what he sows. He's also promised that every nation, uh, whether will either be exalted or that nation will be ruined based upon what they sow when it comes to God and morals and such. You remember at the end of chapter 1, one of the questions that Habakkuk asked, you remember near the end, he doesn't use the terminology exactly, but in it he says this, how long? God, you say you're going to use them in this wicked nation? How long is that going to happen? And it's interesting. Did you catch it in verse 6? I believe it is. Yeah, verse 6, God himself asked the rhetorical question the same thing. How long? You asked me how long? I can just imagine God saying, you're asking me how long this is going to happen? And then he makes this statement. Notice in verse 6. And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Now that's an interesting statement, okay? The terminology of thick clay literally means heavy debt, okay? And it just means he keeps piling it up. And he's kind of describing for us the picture here of that these nations that they have plundered and they spoiled that they in turn will be indebted to them for all the spoiling and plundering. See, we could put it this way, and and I would not call it a concise statement, but a descriptive statement. The one who plundered without mercy. This is the Chaldeans, right? This is Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonians. The one who plundered without mercy, who conquered with little regard for anyone or anything, and who took to quench his own insatiable appetite and desire, would soon be plundered, conquered, and spoiled. He describes that and heading into verse 7 and then again in verse 8. Here's what's going to happen to you, Babylonians. You, you, you've descended upon people. And now uh, it, it's going to, and verse 7 says this, it will come suddenly. And so we go back up to verse 6. Do you realize what he's saying? See, we have a colloquialism or a saying in, here in America. Have you ever said it to yourself? Or I, I like to picture it sometimes, okay? That somebody keeps talking and they keep getting themselves into trouble and we say, boy, you're digging deeper, right? When someone's doing that, sometimes I'll go like this. Because you're digging deeper. <laughs> keep at it. Might be a good time just to shut your mouth, okay? Like I, I like to say, quit while you're behind. The normal saying, quit while you're ahead. I like to say, quit while you're behind, man. It's only getting deeper. Stop digging deeper, right? And uh, that's kind of what's being said here. The Chaldeans, you say, how long, Habakkuk? Don't worry. They're just kind of adding to their account. You know what I've seen in life, and I think more so the Scriptures bear it out, most importantly, is that ill-gotten gains almost always blow up in your face. If you go about getting something of your own volition and through selfish ambition and through means that are not right and godly, can I tell you, that will blow up in your face. Uh, God will provide. God will give you. But boy, don't, don't do it through ill-gotten means. I, I think he used here in a moment, he'll talk about that, the idea um, evil covetousness and so forth that kind of carries this idea of evil of evil gains ill-gotten gains and uh, it's a good writer it's going to blow up in your face i i think of the picture and and uh, i don't know i think it's funny when uh, a thief or a robber will go into a bank to steal money and you know how the banks have the die packs they'll put in money and things like that and and um, often operated remotely and things that die goes off and it either covers the the money marks it dies it so that it can 
can't be spent, they'll know immediately. Or sometimes it blows up in the robber's face, which is kind of funny. And uh, that, that's the picture I get, you know? Ill-gotten gains kind of blow up in your face. There was one that happened in Glendale, Arizona last summer, I think, sometime in 2020. And... Uh, man went into a bank and his getaway vehicle was a bicycle and uh, he, he, he got money from the teller he threw it in his bag and the, the, the um, surveillance video or the security video from nearby buildings caught him he was driving down and all of a sudden the money went off the, the die pack went off and this guy's riding his bike and all of a sudden this pink dust went behind it it wasn't a gender reveal I promise yeah, it was literally the pack. They, somebody in the bank must have uh, triggered it. And, then, and here he is, he's driving. And all of a sudden, this, this pink cloud just follows him all along the way. And just a good reminder, isn't it? Ill-gotten gains will always blow up in your face. They always come with a die pack. Uh, it's, it, it'll never work out if you get it in ways that do not follow God's word. And so that, that's what he's reminding Habakkuk of. This is going to happen. And, and he's saying here, here's what's amazing. The tables are turned. And it's not going to be pretty. Habakkuk, in a few days and years when you live, if you live to see the Chaldean um, conquering invasion, it will not be pretty what the Chaldeans do. We know them to be a terrible, God himself described them as a terrible, horrible uh, nation and what they did, the, the atrocities they committed. It will not be pretty. But the day is coming when the tables will be turned. And that's what he's describing here. The very people, the very victims, the ones, the nations that you have spoiled and killed they will turn it on you. Tables will be turned. You see, it's interesting too. As you catch it, notice it in verse 7. He says, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall, notice this description here, bite thee, vex thee. And notice the last statement here. He says, spoil thee. Uh, he says, thou shalt be booties unto them. Forgive me, but after too many babies, all I can think of is a baby's booties. That's not what he's describing. It's the booty like you would think of a, a pirate ship. And the, the spoil is literally what it means. The spoil. You're going to be the spoil. They will vex you. They will spoil you. And I love that first description. It's rather descriptive. They will bite thee. Now that term that he uses is a little bit of a play on words in the Hebrew. It is a word that is right next to kin, we would say, similar to another word that literally means to, use, uh, to take usury. Uh, someone who has to pay, and uh, maybe in my English or American history, we think of the mobs who made uh, businesses pay for protection and things like that. And, and we're not going to blow up your thing if you pay us money. That's the kind of idea here, to take usury. And that day they would, they would conquer lands and they'd basically say, well, we won't destroy your city if you send us money. If you, if you give us uh, spoils and things and continue, you pay us tribute, another terminology for it. And so that's the picture here. They're gonna, the, the very people you've conquered and destroyed are going to rise up and you're going to have to pay them tribute. They're going to bite thee. It's gonna come, we have the terminology, don't we? It'll come back to bite you. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we, we often, and it's quite an interesting study to see how many of our colloquialisms or statements, little sayings, um, are derived often from Scripture. I'm not saying this one is, but boy, it reminds you of it, doesn't it? It's going to come back to bite you. That's what he says. They're going to bite you. They will come back to bite you. And he goes on to describe it. And well, let me back up. Here, here, here's one of the things that I have found out in Scripture. And if you study Scriptures long enough, you'll see that it's, huh, it's in there a lot. And even it's in our future, it's this simple truth. Uh, there is a great role reversal that often happens when God's plan plays out. 
We think of the Israelites and the nations. There are many nations who vexed them, and boy, the tables were turned, weren't they? Uh, it was turned upside down on them, and Israel was placed, when they, when they affected Israel, boy, Israel at some point came rulers over them, certainly in the promised land and things like that. Uh, it plays out in so many different places and ways. We think of Joseph and his brothers. We, I mean, we could just story after story after story. You know what? Boy, God's plan, when it plays out, often there's a role reversal. And can I tell you right now, boy, we live in a world that is not friends of Christians. It's not, it's not friendly to living holy. It's not friendly to saying, I live for someone else. It's not friendly to saying, you know what? I live by a book of principles and truths. I sure am glad, though, the day is coming where the roles will be reversed. We're going to live in a world, we're going to live in a place where God is not only spiritually, but physically on the throne. And where that is the way of life. You know, as a youth pastor, one of my goals was to create an environment. And I, I would tell our teenagers this often. I want to create an environment in which godliness was both exalted in the norm. And if you didn't want to do right, if you didn't want to live right, you felt out of place. Now, I don't think we ever achieved that. You say, why? Because we live on a sin-cursed, sin-stained world. But that was the goal. Now, can I tell you, I don't think we're going to be able to obtain that until we get to heaven. It's a good thing to strive for. It's a good thing to desire, and I think we ought to work for that, and you can get close to it in that sense. But reality is this, man, I sure am looking forward to the time that we live in a place where godliness is exalted, that godliness is is the norm, and that everybody loves the Lord. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? When you and I walk in here, boy, it's nice because we have something that unifies us. That's a love for the Lord, a desire to live for him, knowledge of him that unites us. But it stinks, doesn't it, on a Wednesday night when you and I have to walk out and go back in the world? Sunday, Monday morning, we have to go back out and walk in the world. I'm looking forward to that day when that won't be the case. We're going to live in a place called heaven in which that is the norm, and we're constantly in that environment. Uh, Role reversal is a beautiful thing. Tables turn. Look at verse 8. Notice how he describes it a little bit more. Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land and of the city and of all that dwell therein. All those that are left in these nations that they have conquered and the remnant of the victims we might describe, they will greatly spoil the Babylonians. And he says, here's why. Here's a long list of atrocities. You shed innocent blood. You uh, brought violence to the land. You uh, destroyed cities and the lives of those that lived in the cities. You see, their uncontrolled, sin-laden ambitions that sprang from great pride will be part of their undoing. They're going to reap what they've sowed. And it was, as I mentioned earlier, it was fulfilled when the Medes and the Persians rose to power conquered the Babylonians, and they were basically wiped off the pages of history. And other nations uh, then conquered them and invaded them too. But there's more that makes them deserving. Look at verse number 9. We notice the next woe, the third one, if I would describe it as such. Verse number 9, woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness. And that's, that's that terminology that some believe is like ill gains, ill-gotten gains, okay? To his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and has sinned against thy soul for the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it okay third woe it would be this woe to the one who gives in to pride induced unbridled covetousness okay so woe to the proud 
Then as we saw, woe to the one who gives in to pride and do self-ambition. And then we come to this third one, woe to the one who gives in to pride-induced, unbridled, uncontrolled covetousness. The Chaldeans would live by a simple rule. They saw, they desired, and they took. We saw it play out in the Garden of Eden with Eve. <laughs> she saw it was pleasant, and so she took the fleshly rule of thumb. And I coveted, I wanted, and that's how they lived. That's how the Chaldeans would then do that. And we see what was the outcome of this covetousness. And here's what God says. You will go about trying to procure safety and security while exalting yourselves. In doing so, they took lands and possessions that did not belong to them. They killed those who did not threaten them, that innocent blood, and they sought to be untouchable while selling short the reach of God's judging hand. Did you catch the end of that verse? He says, um, notice at verse number 9, that he may set his nest on high. He may be delivered from the power of evil. Their heart's desire was to be untouchable. And they tried to outreach God. Or go and live in such a way where God couldn't reach them, and that's futile. <laughs> the outcome is the very thing they were trying to secure, they lost. You see, while they were securing themselves to, or trying to secure themselves safety and security, what they were really securing was condemnation for themselves. Verses 9 and 10 show us exactly what did they achieve. What did they gain in their covetousness and how they acted upon it? What was it they gathered unto themselves? Well, he says it, number one, you, you gained shame. You gain shame. That uh, makes it clear. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house. Number two, he says, you, you've gained a long list of sins against your own soul. You've sinned against your own soul. I, uh, obviously, the greatest sin is to sin against God, but number, right after that is to sin against your own soul. You've condemned your own soul is literally the idea there. You sinned in damning, and by doing so, you've damned your soul is the picture there. They even gained creation and the lands and the buildings crying out their guilt. And I, I love that. And uh, as he describes it, the timbers of the wall, the beam of the timber will, will answer the stone that cries out about their guilt. Uh, this is how wicked they're going to be in their conquest of the nations. Their desire to be the greatest, to be an unparalleled power and strength of a nation in the earth. It reminds us of this simple truth, how... How soon the greatest kingdoms here on earth, the greatest kings and rulers, forget there is a king to whom all other kings will bow. And there is a kingdom before whom all other kingdoms can never and will never stand. They thought, they, God, nobody will touch us. The Jews and all these other nations, the Philistines, nobody's going to stop us. Nobody's going to prevent us from invading. Nobody's going to stop us from conquering and taking over the known land in their minds and and who do they forget? The one who holds the calendar. The one who has appointments on that calendar. The one who is the God of the harvest. Who would ensure that this is it. We know the truth. Revelation chapter 19 verse 16. Great verse, right? And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. One of the great truths of Revelation is you read through it. You will find this description in one form or another repeated often. It is reminding us that Revelation is the time where the world comes to realize every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is king. And the Chaldeans were forgetting that. It would be better for all to remember in their lifetime. Every day. 
He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. It's interesting for them, this is covetousness. Their covetousness caused them to ignore and think they were untouchable by the hand of God, the judging hand. We hear a lot about vaccines today. Don't worry, I'm not getting political. But we hear a lot about vaccines today. And he speaks of covetousness here. And so what, what is the great vaccine for covetousness? Well, it's contentment. Contentment. It, it's joining Paul in, in saying, uh, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am. And that's Indiana, Michigan, New York. Okay, anyway, state. Okay, some of you caught that. Therewith to be content. You want to know what stops covetousness? Hey, Chaldeans, Babylonians, be content with what I've given you. Be content. Content. Uh, it is the great vaccine to covetousness. And as you can imagine, the opposite is true. You're content. The devil loves to in, <laughs> introduce a virus into you. You know what that virus is? It's obviously uh, the reality of covetousness. So to put it in modern terms that you and I understand, the reality is you may be content, but boy, the devil would love to come along and say, hey, look at that. Hey, see what they're enjoying, what they have, see what, what, what's happening in their life. And boy, that covetousness becomes that virus in the heart. What is that covetousness produced by? Well, think about it. It's at least fueled, sometimes produced by pride. As it was for the Chaldeans here. They're a prideful nation. And look, they're looking at other nations. Well, we should have that. Why shouldn't we be the best on the block? Why shouldn't we be the greatest power out there? And boy, the same thing happens to us. Well, I deserve that. I've worked long and hard. Why do they get that and I don't? Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, why, why, why shouldn't I get that? Sometimes we take it a step farther and we'll say, well, if I can't have it, no one should. It's interesting, the very thing that drove their armies across the known world would be one of the things that condemns them and leads to their destruction. Covetousness. I would implore you and I today, this is interesting, but the fact is God is laying out every one of their faults for Habakkuk. No doubt it should have sounded a warning for the nation of Israel. Make sure you're not lifted up in pride. Make sure that in self-ambition, you, you aren't deviating from the principles, the truths, the statutes I have given you. And then number three, don't be covetous. Be content with such things as you have. Whatever state you find yourself, whatever situation you're in, just be content. Live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Everything's resting upon that foundation there in verse number four. The just shall live by faith. Here is the antithesis of it. I, I find it interesting. He's saying, woe to the one who gives in to pride-induced, unbridled covetousness. We get to the New Testament, and Jesus Christ himself, he warns of it in Luke chapter 12. Look at verse 15, just the first part. He says this, and he said unto them, take heed and beware of covetousness. You know, I think that is a, a lesson, a warning that is needed in every day. Every period of time, every error we find ourselves, every generation that comes along, and you've heard me say it, I, I think that the devil learned a long time ago that us in the modern world, the, those of us who, uh, progressive world, industrialized world, he learned that uh, some time ago, not that it will not come up to persecution things, but he learned a long time ago, it isn't trying to destroy us in persecution, it's to distract us, is what works. 
distractions with the plethora of things that we have, the luxuries, the, the, the things that distract us for living for God. Uh, he, he, the devil loves to, uh, to see what I call hobby Christianity. It's just one of many things that I do when the reality is that I am called to live for my God and my Savior. So be careful because covetousness plays right into that. You can get distracted by covetousness. It can get us away from what God would have.